Let me take a little survey before we start today. In the last week, how many of you have talked with somebody about money? Give me just how much a cup of coffee costs. Whatever, you know, let's ask this. How many of you didn't have a conversation about money? A couple. How many of you didn't even think about money? You know, I put in your notes here, it's, money's kind of like, it really could be the theme of the old Willie Nelson song, right? You know, you're always on my mind. You know, I mean, it, it's something we think about all the time, isn't it? Every time you drive up to the gas pump, you can't believe it's, it's three fifty nine a gallon, you know? I mean, we're, we're always thinking about money. And the, there's probably a lot of good reasons for that. Probably from a worldly perspective, many of us are wrestling with the issue of money. Talked with several people in recent weeks. One family talking about the fact that on several different occasions, they literally their, their bank account has been almost zero, and they had a whole week to live through before the next paycheck came in. Others talking about how they struggling with, with giving the way that they know they should give. And, and there's a tremendous pressure on us. I mean, in our culture, money governs a lot of things. And it's created a lot of heartache in the lives of people, and with that, a huge burden. Do you know the, the average credit card debt and I don't mean across all, but if an individual is carrying a balance on their credit card, you know what the average of that is in America? It's over $15,000. So if you're, most people, if they've gotten into a position where they are financing their lifestyle on their credit cards, that debt has got, gotten up to being over $15,000 for their household. In the United States, consumer debt, that's things not only credit card debt, but buying a car or that couch you bought on 12 monthly installments for no interest or you know, that new microwave that's on there that you're paying off in six months or you know, the, you know, those kinds of things. Consumer debt is $4.3 trillion. I have no idea how much that is. But when you do the math, they tell me that that adds up to almost $8,000 worth of debt for every man, woman, and child living in the United States right now. So on top of your mortgage or on top of your rent, you got eight, sixteen, dollars $32,000 worth of debt that you're trying to wrestle with. And, and no wonder money's always on our mind. It's interesting, too, I think some of the reasons why it's on our mind is because the Bible pays quite a bit of attention to money. You know, in the scriptures, the issue of money is spoken to directly over 500 times in the Bible. Money, our finances, is a very spiritual issue in the eyes of God. If you look at it in a wider sense, where it talks about our material possessions and some other things and, and the things that are allusions to this issue, there are over 1,600 verses in the Bible that speak about the place and the role of money in our lives. It's, it's a huge topic for us. And part of what that should suggest to us is we've been working through the series entitled Living with the End in Mind. And we've had this graphic up the whole time, the idea that at some point in time, our lives on this planet are going to come to an end. And we're going to stand before a creator. And most of us, I hope all of us, are longing for God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, we're looking to end life well. And so we've been asking the question, well, what does it take for us to live with the end in mind? Or maybe put it a different way, we've been asking the question of how is it that we really live with success here and now? And we find ourselves at this point having to deal with this last topic in the seven-week series that we've been in of how do we figure out how money figures into that equation for us? How does our finances, our, our financial life fit into the way we're supposed to be successful in the eyes of God. It's a part of our lives every single day. It's on our minds. It's God gives us plenty of instruction for it. So we're going to try to wrestle with that question today of how do you and I maintain mastery over our money so that our money doesn't become masters over us? Now, I know this is it with, oh, geez, another money sermon. Well, we haven't had very many money sermons, to tell you the truth. It's been a long time. 
But I will tell you that as a pastor who's concerned about your spiritual welfare, it's a, it's a word that I need to bring. I speak it not just to you, I speak it to me. It applies to all of us. I'm not above any of the things that I will share with you today. But it is a matter that we need to get right in our hearts if we're truly going to be successful in the eyes of God. And obviously with 500 verses in the scriptures that talk about money, we could spend the next 52 weeks dealing with this issue. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend today dealing with this issue. So I had to narrow it down a little bit, and I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look here primarily, but we'll also make a, a, a rendezvous with a parable that Jesus taught in, in Luke 16 a little later in the message. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text on page 1010. That's page 1010. If you're using your own Bible, you'll find Timothy over back towards the back of your New Testaments. Again, Keep in mind that this is a passage of Scripture renting, written from a mentor to the one that he's mentoring, from the one who has been the teacher to his student who is now becoming the teacher, the leader. Paul is literally trying to prepare Timothy to become the next generation of Christian leaders. And he's been laying out much wisdom about how to be a man of God and how to lead in the church as a man of God and dealing with issues that the church will deal with. And beginning here of chapter 6, he's been dealing with the idea of what causes divisions and, and conflict with inside the body and in particular those who are pursuing kind of false doctrine for their own personal gain. And verse 6, he picks up with this counsel for Timothy directly. He says, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich, and some of your translations have it strong, those who pursue riches fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Picking up with verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come. I'd call that living with the end in mind. So that they may take hold of life that is real. May God add the, his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I want to start up front by reminding us that Paul does not say that money is evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, let's, let's look at some truths from this passage of Scripture. And again, there, there's many things that can be said here, and as well as Luke 16, where we're going to get. But, but I, I want to try to look at these truths through the filter of saying, what is it that you and I need to know about the place of money in our lives so that we maintain spiritual mastery over it rather than it become our master as we go forward? And the first truth that, I, that I, we need to understand is that you and I need to stay vigilant. We need to accept the fact that the way we handle our financial lives can and will derail our spiritual walk, our faith, if we're not careful. What, is, what does he say here? He says those who, who, those who pursue riches, those who want to be rich, fall into temptation in verse 9. Later he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's possible by the way you and I live in the world and the relationship that we have with stuff, with money, that it can actually derail our faith. Probably the greatest 
biblical example of this is Solomon. He was a guy who had incredible wisdom from God, who had every success in life, who was incredibly wealthy. And yet all of that, along with his relationships with his 700 wives, led him to walk away from God. It derailed him spiritually, even though he started from a place that was so high, a place that you and I could only dream about getting to spiritually. To see God face to face. To hear the voice of God speaking to him. God granting him specific wisdom. And it all got derailed because he was after stuff long enough. And and here's, here's the truth. There are many people who consider themselves mature believers. They consider themselves to be, you know, they thought a lot about God. And they have, they have no awareness about the fact that the way that they handle their money affects them spiritually. A lot of times, even as, as believers, whether we're, we're rich or poor, whether we're young or old, whether we're male or female, married or single, or, or any other place you want to plug in, we need to understand that our faith needs to impact our finances. And we also need to accept the fact that our finances can impact our faith. And most of us, we have no plan. We've never thought long and hard about how it is that God wants us to use our money. We think, well, you know, the only challenge I really have with money is figuring out how much money does God want me to give. And once I'm done with that, everything else is gravy. I'll take the struggle before God. I say, what am I supposed to give? And once I get done with that, I'll just go out and I'll grab the world standards and how to turn what's left into more and more and more and more. And that's the way we look at it. And, and, and we hear this warning from, from Paul today, speaking the words of God that you and I need to understand, that we need to be vigilant in this area. We need to understand how finances can impact our faith and we also need to know how our faith is supposed to impact our finances it's sure it has a lot to do about how much you give which is an issue for the vast majority of believers today many believers would tell you i know i don't give enough i know i'm supposed to give more and so there's that issue but on the other side there's also a question of what am i supposed to do with what's left and need to understand that what you do with that will impact literally your spiritual vitality It's not a separate and distinct thing. It's a part of who we are. And it's a part of our spiritual journey. We need to stay vigilant. You know, this idea of of how we incorporate our financial lives into into our spiritual journey. I mean... The fact that many of us live without any idea of how to do that. You know, and one of the places where I see that is, is, you know, I worked when I was in seminary, I worked with college students. And, you know, that was my ministry focus. So you'd see these kids who would come out of a Christian home. They go to college. They grew up in the church, going to the youth group. They were committed to the Lord. They go to college. They get involved with a campus ministry on campus. They get involved with a church that, that I was pastoring with. They get out of school. They'd get a job and faith would just fall off the planet. Because when it got around to be about careers and how do I pay my bills and pay back my student loans and how do I, you know, make these career choices, they had no idea. They had no plan to integrate their faith into their financial lives. Or put the other way, they had no strategy to integrate their financial lives into their faith. And when they get to a place, finances just took over. It just took over. And, and they didn't know how to fit it together. You and I need to be vigilant in this area. We need to think long and hard about how it is that God wants us to handle the gifts that he gives to us. The second thing I tell you, that in order for you and I to live with the end in mind in the arena of our money, is this topic. You and I need to mind our love lives. Look what he says in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You you and I need to be careful that we don't get seduced into a love affair with money. Because the love of money leads to all kinds of evils. And, and you don't have to look too hard through history to see that, right? In the name of acquiring more stuff, we've literally wiped out entire civilizations in the quest for gold and silver and etc. 
incredible atrocities that can be committed in the pursuit of more. Even in our own nation, we just kept driving the American Indians further and further away and breaking treaties with them because we just needed more. All kinds of evils happen out of the love of money. Now, most of you aren't going to slay somebody to take their money. But can you and I fall in love with money in such a way that it creates evil in our lives? How can you tell if you're in love with money? How can you tell that you possess your money rather than your money possessing you? I don't know if I have all the answers for that. I see some hints from the, from the scriptures, from these scriptures that speak to this. And, and I see these truths in my own life. You and I are flirting with, an, with a love affair with money, when money is the primary goals in our lives. Again, in verse 9, it says, but those who want to be rich, those who pursue riches, when, when you and I arrange all of our lives simply to make more and more money, we're falling in love with money. When our commitments, our choices about second jobs or career advancements, etc., is all about making more. Without any real serious consideration of all the other things that are valuable in our lives, we're falling in love with money. When money is the primary goal in our lives, it's what lines up all of our decisions, our priorities, our commitments, then you and I are probably falling in love with money. Second one. Verse 17, chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. When you and I define our self-worth by what we're worth, we're probably in love with money. I mean, there are some people who are just, they're just good at business, whatever, whatever it is that they're doing. And they just have a way of, of touching it and, it, and it turns into gold and they make money. I mean, who was the guy? I mean, two, two guys, right? You know, out of our own area, you know, Bill Gates drops out of college, starts, starts Microsoft, right? How many billions did he make? Just a golden touch, right? Just recently, the guy who founded Facebook, right? He's back at Harvard University. Drops out of Harvard, goes out and starts Facebook. Now he's worth billions of dollars. Some guys can just make it work. And there's a temptation sometimes when we're good at, maybe better at what we do than others, we can get a little arrogant. I make more at this than you. And we can think we're better than others. And we, we could see that through history and all kinds of examples. But it doesn't just work that way. No, it works the other way. You know, um, I think I've told this story here before, but... My brother and his wife were a part of a church plant in New Hampshire. Much like we started, they started out in some homes, and then they started meeting in a school, and eventually they built a piece of property, and, and he was a, the chairman of their building committee, and they got their, they built their facility. It's a different style than ours. A few of us actually went up at the end and helped them kind of finish up their building and doing a little sheetrocking in the attic and some other places. And, and shortly after they were in the building, maybe a year or so after they were in the building, he and his wife uh, just felt what led that they needed to leave the congregation and go somewhere else. And, and, and here's what was happening. Phil has been very good at business, has a, has a nice company, makes a good living. They have, they have a nice home. It's not, you know, not, you know, it's not overwhelming, but it's a nice home. It's large, large piece of property, and it's, it's built well. And they were constantly entertaining people from the church. Come over, they have dinner, cookouts, this and that. Never once did they get invited back to somebody else's home. Never. So after a while, they felt like, we just can't build relationships here. We, we can't develop a sense of community here. They, they've been in the church from the very beginning. So they made a decision to leave the church, and, they, and they, they informed the leadership, and they said, well, why are you leaving? And they said, well, we just really haven't been able to make real relationships here. They said, well, what do you mean? I mean, listen, you know, we invite all kinds of people over to, for, for meals and et cetera to, to, to create friendship, and, and, and never once have we been invited anywhere else in all these years. And the guy sitting around the room, one by one, said, well, I was embarrassed to have you come to my my house, it's not as nice as yours. You're in love with money because you're defining your worth by how much you have, what your house looks like. I admit, you may not want to have somebody over when you're in a construction project and you're getting water out of the toilet to clean the dishes. I understand that, you know, but I've never done that, by the way. The garden hose, yes, but not out of the... But, but you know what I mean? But they're mad. So, hey, listen, their house is not as much... 
I, I'm, I couldn't invite them over here. And we, we define ourselves by that. I can't be a leader in this ministry or whatever because, you know, I, I'm not successful enough. I don't have the right title in my secular career. And, we do, and when we do that, we're, we're in love with money. He lastly says or suggests to us that we are in love with money when we base our security on it. He tells them in verse 17 not to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. If the reason you can lie down and sleep well at night is because you think you have enough money in the bank or you're making enough money every month, if that's the reason that you think you have peace, you're in love with money. You've got to man- mind your love life and make sure you're up in a love affair with money because you can't serve God and money. So we've got to be vigilant. Understand that money can take us down spiritually. With that, we've got to pay attention to our love life and what we're truly in love with if we're going to be successful. Third point. And I want to point you over to Luke chapter 16. It's an interesting parable that Jesus tells through the first 13 verses. I know it's kind of late in my sermon to introduce new texts, but I, it's, it's such a great story, and, it, and it, it relates so much about what we need to talk about today. Luke 16, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, the text is on page 887. Hear the words of Jesus as he speaks. He says, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and he asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to him, what should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, which probably means I'm not strong enough to, to farm. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves to both God and money. This is a great passage, and we could park here and go through a lot of things, and I'm going to force myself just to deal with one little aspect of this. You know, but the point of this parable is not that Jesus is praising deception and deviousness. He's not saying you all should become the best cheats in the planet. That's not what he's saying at all, okay? He talks about this unrighteous steward who's going to lose his job. He has no competency to do anything else. He says, I I need at least a runway to get by. How am I going to do that? And so what he does is he uses what's before him to win friends and influence people. And this way, when he gets kicked out of his job, they'll say, hey, listen, you were nice to me. Come on in. I'll, I'll feed you. You can stay with me for a while, whatever. You can sofa surf here at my house for a while. That kind of stuff. You know, that's, that's, that's his idea. And Jesus is, takes that parable, and, he, and this is a statement he makes. It says, the people who are living in the world for worldly agenda, people who are living in the world for themselves, they are far better. They've thought it through, and they do it much better in terms of how I'm making their dreams come true than the sons of light do in using what God's given them to make the dreams of the kingdom come true. And, you know, he's saying, you know, the worldly folks, I mean, man, they're clever and they're inventive and they take a lot of initiative and, and they figured out how to get to their goals by the use of what they have. When it comes to the sons of light, eh, they don't get much bang for their buck. 
in terms of advancing the kingdom with money. And, and here's, here's the, the, the reality that you and I need to embrace. If we're going to be successful in the eyes of God, we have to, in, in terms of our money, we have to lean toward advancing the kingdom with what God's given us. We need to think through, how is it that I can take what I have, what God has given to me, and how can I better leverage it to make friends for the kingdom, as he says, to advance the causes of the sons of light. And here's, here's at a very basic level. You and I need to involve God in all of our spending plans. Not just what we spend on God, but what we spend everything on. I think I've told this story here before. I know I've told this story here before, but, you know, back when we started Hope Chapel, Christina and I had this little minivan. And there was a number of Sundays where we couldn't get the trailer. We had this church trailer that everything we owned was in there. The, the, the drums were in there and all the speakers and all the children's stuff and whatever. And, and we used to have this big back crew. And there was a couple of Sundays, we just couldn't get it out of the driveway. It was just too icy, you know, because it, it was front-wheel drive or whatever. So we went out and bought this Ford Expedition so we'd be able to drag the trailer to church every Sunday no matter what. Four-wheel drive. The only problem was I hated that car. I, I hated that car. Christina liked it. I hated that car. You know, and so we had had it, I don't know, for like two and a half, three years, and we had moved into this building, and we, know we, we didn't really need it any longer to make sure we could get the trailer out of the driveway. So it needed some new tires. It was getting to be wintertime. It was actually like a November storm kind of thing, and so we decided we'd, that day, since we didn't have anything else to do with the snow, we, we went down to National Tire and Battery in, in Shrewsbury. I took it in there and said, you know, can you give me some price and some new tires for these? And he said, well, let's pull it in. We'll take a look at it. So he pulled it in and took a look at the tires. And, and he comes back and he said, well, you need tires all the way around. You need brakes all the way around. You got some tie rod issues, a couple other things. And he gives me an estimate of $2,400. And I'm thinking, I ain't spending another penny on this car. So we got in the car and I talked my wife and we drove down Route 9 to a brand new Lincoln Mercury dealer. And we took this used Mercury Mountaineer for a ride. It had, you know, teens on it, like 16,000, 17,000 miles. It was beautiful. It was leather, heated seats, a moonroof, and had a drop-down DVD player. Benjamin was with us. He was like 10, you know. So that, that was, you know, it was, it, all the stuff, right? So we go through all these. They're going to give us good money for the expedition. The payments were going to be doable, all that kind of stuff. And so we're literally all the paperwork is in front of us, you know, in this little cubicle with a salesman meeting with us. And, and you know, after 20 years of marriage, you kind of start picking up cues from your wife pretty easily. And she's hemming and hawing over there. And I can tell her. So, so I said to the salesman, I said, get, just give us a couple minutes by ourselves. So he gets up and he walks out of the, out of the cubicle. And, and I look at her and she says, we haven't even prayed about this. And I'm thinking, crud. <laughs> you know, we're going to be stuck with this car for, and sure enough, we were stuck with this car for another couple of years, you know. And, uh, you know, it, but how many of us really involve God in our decision making about what we spend our money on? I mean, I remember when we were moving to Sterling. Uh, from the South Shore. And, what, you know, we went in and we, we met with a, a, a real estate broker and they qualified us, if you will, for a mortgage. I'm thinking, if we borrow that much money, we're not going to be able to do what God wants us to do. You know, we want to have some money available for mission trips and we want to be able to support some missionaries beyond what we give to the church and some other things. And, and it, so we made a decision we were only going to bur- borrow less than two-thirds of that. And most of that was because we were seeking what God wanted us to do and all that. It's, it's you know, we, we need to involve God in our spending plan if we're really going to be people who are going to advance the kingdom. One, one last truth, because I know our time is, is growing short. I've been telling too many stories. Going back over to First Timothy chapter 6. You'll notice at the end of verse 17 that God says this. You know, he says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but to set their focus, their hope on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy stuff. 
Doesn't, just because we're taking God seriously in our finances doesn't mean that you and I need to have to be, you know, just impoverished, if you will. You know, it's okay to have a nice car if it fits into God's financial scheme for you. It's all right to take a nice vacation if it fits into God's financial scheme for you. I'm thankful every time I open the garage door and there's a motorcycle there for me and a motorcycle there for Christina. We really enjoy riding. That's okay. God does give us some gifts to enjoy. Enjoy that stuff. All in the context of what we've been talking to up to now. But enjoy that stuff. But don't base your joy on that stuff. You see the difference? It's okay to enjoy God's gifts. He gives us lots of good things to enjoy them. But don't base your joy on them. Here's the question that I've been wrestling with. If right now I was living on half of what we make together as a family on an annual basis, would I be as content and as happy with God as I am right now? See, that to me gets at the root of whether or not I'm really basing my joy on what I have. It's okay to enjoy things. Don't base your joy on those. God wants us to be successful in every area of our lives. He wants our financial lives literally to fuel our spiritual growth and development, to see him at work and to be used by him to advance his kingdom. You know, we've been in a journey now for seven weeks asking the question of what does it take to live with the end in mind? God's truth always calls us to response. We've had a chance to count the cost over these weeks. And this morning, I feel it's really appropriate for us to make a decision. This is a decision moment for us. Are we going to live with the end in mind, with the intention of God greeting us at the end of the journey with a well-done, good and faithful servant? In your worship guides this morning, there's a, a special response card in there. And, it, and it, on it is a, the definition of success that we've been laboring through. It is that ongoing, heartfelt commitment to being the person that God intends for you to be in every area of life. The ongoing is sustained. It starts now and it keeps lasting and lasting and lasting. It doesn't wane when we get into our 30s or our 40s or our 50s. It doesn't wane when our fifth kid comes or whatever. It, it just, it's always there. It's ongoing. It's heartfelt. It's what we want. And it's commitment. It leads to real change, real transformation. And we do that by, as we looked at in the second week, about making sure that the treasure of our heart is aligned with the treasures of God so that we stay on focus. We've looked at the fact that we need to leave, live with spiritual shock absorbers in our life because life will deal us eight, some firm, hard blows with the intent of knocking us off the journey of trying to really be ses- successful in the eyes of God. We've looked at how to embrace work as worship and to see that role in our lives as a way that God can use us and, and speaks through us and makes a difference. You know, we looked at the issue of of how to make friends and to keep friends and and to direct friends closer to God as a result of those relationships. Last week, we looked at the issue of how is it that we truly succeed at home? Because if we fail at home, it really isn't a way for us to to succeed in the eyes of God. And today, we've been talking about how to master our money so it doesn't doesn't become our master. God's probably been speaking to you in each of those sections in various ways. And and today, I certainly want to call you to, to draw a line in the sand and say, today I change. Today, I sign up to live with the end in mind so that God will greet me with a well-done, good, and faithful servant. For some of you, that will be a brand new commitment. In fact, you've never, ever even given your life to God. You, you know, I believed in God kind of thing, but the idea of believing in a Savior who came down out of heaven to die on a cross so that I can be redeemed, and I've never made the personal choice to invite and to accept that, invite Christ into my life to affect that, accept that gift of eternal life. You can do that today. That's where the commitment starts. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But there's a need for us, like in echoing 
remembering the words of Joshua to choose this day whom we're going to serve. And so we're going to sing a response song in just a minute. Tamson and, and is going to come and, and they're going to sing for us while we just ponder before God. And I'm going to invite you, if you feel led by God, just to, to put your name in that card and come forward and place it. We have a, a couple of special baskets that we've gotten. We're not going to look through this list. We're not going to develop a list and mail it out to everybody. This is between you and the Lord. But there's great symbolism, in, if you will, in bringing forth your commitment, your life, and setting it before God on his altar. And that's what we're asking you to do today. Make the commitment if you mean it. And if you mean it, make the commitment. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for being so interested in us. God, thanks for being so desirous for us to live life, the real kind of life that Timothy is talked about, told about here by Paul. God, we know it requires a choice in our part. We're in that moment of choice. Guide us, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.